Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, a conversation on women's sexual health. Today I'm joined by members of our PBF Medical Board to discuss something very interesting. So Dr. Critchman, let's start with you. Can you introduce yourself and tell them what you do on a daily basis? Well, hi, Patty. Thanks so much for having us today to talk about so many important issues in women's sexual health. I'm a sexual medicine gynecologist. I am in clinical practice as well. I have uh, four offices that I rotate through. I see high-risk women who are at risk for cancer or those who are dealing with cancer on a regular basis, plus those who have chronic medical conditions. In addition, I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and I also uh, supervise the residents. But one of my uh, most honored positions is I am the chair of the medical board of the PBF. I get to work with wonderful women like yourself and the rest of the MAB to help uh, you know, bring women's sexual health to a new frontier and dispel some of the myths and mysteries and really empower women on a day-to-day basis to take control over their bodies, their sexual health and their general health in, in, in general. So it's really exciting to be here with you to uh, chat about some really important topics and thanks so much for having us. Cheryl. Hi, Patty. Um, I I echo Michael in uh, saying what an honor it is to be here. I love my colleagues and I love the topics and the importance to women's sexual health. I am a clinical psychologist. Um, I have a division of behavioral medicine in an OBGYN department, uh, which allows the sort of the biopsychosocial model, which we'll talk about later, uh, of multidisciplinary approaches to women's health and women's sexual health. So I provide the psychological uh, help to women who have uh, GYN and other uh, medical issues. Um, I'm also a professor in the departments of reproductive biology, psychiatry, and urology, all important um, areas for women's health. Um, at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And uh, I'm the newest, maybe not youngest member of your medical advisory board. Um, So I'm so pleased that you have included a psychologist. Thank you. Thank you. Sherelle. Hello and good morning. I'm Sherelle Iglesia and I am the director of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery for MedStar Health in Washington, DC. I'm also a professor of OBGYN and urology at Georgetown University School of Medicine. And my passion is educating women about pelvic floor issues. In addition to being a surgeon, we um, are intimately involved in training the next generation OBGYN and urology residents. And I'm happy to say that this past Friday was the big match day and all of my mentees, we had 12 um, go into OBGYN, they all matched. Six were particularly, um, I was very close to it. And that's exciting. So in addition to talking to you as patients and as advocates for women's health, we like to train the next generation of um, OBGYNs. Wow, I'm gonna tell you, I am just so honored to have all of these doctors talk with us today. They are committed to giving all of you this information and resources that you need to help your business and to help your customers thrive. I'm proud of all of you. 
This is amazing. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to start right now with Dr. Critchman. Our partners are hearing more complaints from women being concerned with their with the way that their genitals look. Many are inquiring about labiaplasty, laser use and its safety, genital piercings, and other cosmetic concerns. Can you talk to us about these cosmetic sex, cosmetics and what it has to do with sexual health and the advice that you can give with those who are struggling with this decision? So Patty, you know, what a very important and timely, um, you know, topic. I think, you know, it's very, very important to address these issues. And I think for me, the number one issue is about education and really understanding, you know, that we need to empower our women, our young girls as they grow up to understand what their genitals are, to use the right words, to actually take mirrors and show them what their vulvas and vaginas are. You know, very often I know many of the board can attest to the fact that people will say it hurts down there. And we're like, where? Your knees, your ankles, you know, they group everything together. And understand that the first and foremost is about education and understand that every vulva is different, just like every face is different. And very often, I think that the big issue is for me is the why. Why is somebody coming in with this concern? Why are they hearing it? Is it the woman themselves or they've heard comments from other people, their partners and what have you. So first and foremost, I think the most important thing is about educating women about their anatomy, that it's normal. It's, in, it's normal to have vulvas of all different shapes, colors, sizes, right and left sides don't have to be equal. Um, there's a great resource. I think, you know, every woman should probably get that uh, at some point in their life. It's called Viva La Vulva. It really is a great book, which really looks and shows women that there is asymmetry, that there's difference in colors, sizes, textures, and really understanding the why. Now, let's flip back to this concept of autonomy. So autonomy really for me is the number one decision maker. That is that women have self-determination, they have autonomy, they have the ability to control their body. And if a woman is coming in, and I really believe that if she is assessing her own sexual self-esteem and she's saying, look, I'm really uncomfortable, or there's a functional issue, because there can be functional issues with asymmetrical or very long vulva that the vulva uh, lips are rubbing when they're walking and what have you, or they're very concerned about the cosmetic for themselves, not to please a partner, not because they've heard some other things. So very often the first thing that I do is tell me why, tell me why you're here, why you're concerned. And then, you know, if, if the discussion goes down the point, well, you know, my partner said I look different or look strange and or every other partner is normal, then we have a different kind of discussion versus if she says, you know, when I'm having intercourse, my labia are so long, they're being dragged into the vagina and it really causes a lot of pain or, you know, I'm an avid jogger or and I can't, you know, be comfortable in the things that I love to do and I'm really uncomfortable. So I think there is a difference between an aesthetic issue, a cosmetic issue and a functional issue. And really the clinician, an experienced clinician, 
an experienced clinician. And I think many of the panel will attest to that, that we need people that know the vulva, that know the vagina. Women's healthcare professionals need to take back control of the vagina because very often there's undiagnosed issues. They're not being assessed properly. So when you come to labioplasty, again, in experienced hands, a proper procedure, certainly everything um, can go well, but there's also issues. There can be bleeding, there can be infection, there can be changes in sexual function. Remember, the vulva, the lips of the vagina, many women consider this a sexual organ. During sexual arousal, they get, in, they get engorged, there's blood, it may affect your sexual response, and women are not being taught appropriately. So I think there's a lot of reasons for women to learn about their body, become empowered, and under certain circumstances, they may want to get a labioplasty or a reduction and what have you, but really go to experienced hands, go to someone who knows the vulva who, and ask the right questions. I think those are really, really important issues. But let's move on to this other, you know, what I call femtech, the lasers, the radiofrequency, all these new experimental things, right? Um, I was just reviewing an article on light therapy that it was heralded as the greatest thing. I had a woman come in, she spent over $3,000 to get light therapy and there is no data. So what I am, you know, I came out really hard and I know Sherelle will agree with me that I came out really hard on the lasers and radio frequency because we are data driven. We really need to look at the, you know, at the science behind it. And, you know, I think, you know, for me, I've come full circle. I think for lasers, there's emerging data to support their use in a variety of different conditions. Uh, there was just a great, you know, meta-analysis review just this last month in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. It came out, it looked at a CO2 laser treatment for um, vaginal dryness. It looked at a lot of studies and it shows that there's excellent promise. But again, let's back up a little bit experienced clinicians, knowing how to evaluate and assess the, um, the vulva, the vagina. And remember, Patty, I always have this saying, you know, when you hold a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So we tend to realize that clinicians that have lasers want to treat lasers. And I think we treat with lasers and we've come full circle, right? I remember way back when, when I had a laser a uh, representative come in and it told me it made a dry vagina wet and a wet vagina dry and a tight vagina loose and a loose vagina dry. And I said, give me the short list. Tell me what it doesn't do. Follow the science, follow the data, go to good academic centers that have clinicians that are well experienced, well versed in this uh, process. And I think that's a really important thing. Data is changing all the time. And academic clinicians tend to be much more up to date. They tend to be involved in clinical trials. But, you know, I think it shows excellent promise. The science is there, the data is emerging, but this is over time. So, you know, don't jump on the bandwagon to the next best cure. Uh, we as academics and women's health, we're not holding the secrets. Uh, fast to treating dryness or treating you know, sexual problems. We share data as a community and look at the value of the science, right? So again, there's a, you, you, know, you can look at science and see, you know, maybe it's not the best article, but again, look and do research. I think it shows excellent promise. And you know, 
Before we jump into genital piercing, I love would love to hear uh, Sherelle's opinion because I know we, we have sat on the podiums together. We have talked about this. I wrote articles called the Techno Vagina, Rethinking the Techno Vagina. I was one of the first people to write about the complications of laser early in the experience. And again, I think as time unfolds, we learn more as scientists and as doctors, and then we can incorporate this into a clinical experience much better. So Sherelle, please, um, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. Well, <laughs> thanks, Michael. I agree with, with what you're saying. I think one of the issues that has spawned this industry is the hair removal business. We did a study, oh, I, I want to say 10 years ago, where we just actually asked people on the street randomly, and I, I think we went to the undergraduate campus, and how many people were actually using some type of depilatory or pelvic uh, pubic uh, grooming, and it was over 85%. So when you remove all the hair, it, it looks different in the, in the landscape or the manscape. And so now, and Cheryl and I have written about this as well, about the perils of the idealized vulva, and which is what people are seeing on, you know, porn magazines, internet, where, you know, basically it looks like a Barbie doll when you're not supposed to have very big inner lips that are called the labia minora, and they're not supposed to protrude past labia majora, which is totally, in fact, not right. And what happens, I'm very concerned, particularly when young women want to have a certain look because they feel ashamed or they've been shamed, body shamed, um, that they have to go ahead and start cutting things off. I worry 20, 30, 40 years down the line, what's going to happen when lips naturally resorb or potentially nerve damage can occur to the very delicate structures because the labia minora actually conjoined right under the clitoris going too high, and I'm going to be talking about orgasm, one of my favorite topics next, um, that, you know, if you get too close to that, you can damage some of the nerves. So we be careful. Now, with regard to the wands, <laughs> the wands and the lasers, yes, the problem with most of this is that most of the findings have are small with very little follow-up and no comparison, i.e. no placebo or sham. And I'll credit Dr. Critchman for doing one of the best trials looking at radio frequency with a sham device, but it very few exist. You, you, you talked about the, the, the Australian study, which showed no difference um, on, on dryness. Uh, just be careful, buyer beware. There's a lot of marketing ahead of the science when it comes to these kinds of uh, techno vagina issues. Right, you know, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I would say, follow the science and look at the science and what have you. Um, what about, you know, you know, the other topic, Patty, you wanted to kind of briefly talk about is piercings and what have you. And again, um, again, I really want to in, encourage women to kind of look at the why. Why are they doing this and what have you? I certainly have a lot of women in my clinical center that have genital piercings. They have their clitoris pierced. Um, and again, many women will 
uh, come to me and say, well, I've heard on the internet that, you know, if you pierce your clitoris, you're more likely to improve your arousal or improve your orgasmic response. And they really haven't had a proper evaluation or assessment or what have you. So again, if they're looking for an aesthetic, that's one issue. If they're looking for a functional change, that certainly is another issue. And, you know, I can't stress the importance for the choosing your right healthcare team. Uh, you know, I have, because I'm a tertiary referral, I have had women who've had experiences with uh, untrained clinicians who hang up a shingle and they have no training in looking at the vagina or the vulva. They miss a very clear diagnoses that have other simple treatments and what have you. So I can't stress the importance to build a proper healthcare team, do your research, um, you know, and for some reason we know that women, they will do a lot of research for their children, they'll do research on for their husbands or their partners, but when it comes to them, they're very much, um, they may be influenced by other people. And I really wanna stress the fact that I wanna empower women to do the research themselves. Uh, seek out, you know, women's healthcare professional experts, ask the right questions, look at their training, ask how many procedures they've done. Uh, and a good doctor is never afraid of a second opinion. And I see women that have come to see me for second, third, fourth opinions. Um, and I think it's okay to gather information because um, this is your body and this is your sexual response. And I think it's really important for women to be empowered to take back control of what I would call their sexual self-esteem. And understanding their anatomy is one of those, understanding how their response is, is another. So not necessarily that your response may be increased if you have a clitoral piercing. Uh, you know, and like every kind of piercing, there may be issues of infection, inflammation, uh, hard time to heal, uh, scarring, and these are lifelong challenges that you will have after this intervention. And remember, um, the clitoris is really a vital component, one of many components to your sexual response. And you really want to be very careful before you do an intervention that may be permanent and irreversible. So get your information, ask questions. And if you're not in a comfortable environment where you can feel empowered, then it's time to change that environment. And when I say environment, it may be your clinician, or it may be your relationship as well. Um, so I think it's really important for women to stand up for their rights, stand up for their sexual rights, and really be empowered over their anatomy and sexual response. Okay, let me ask a question. You keep saying, get information, go do your due diligence in finding out. Where are they going to go to find this out? Where, where, where are they looking? So, you know, I think the first stop really, and you know, when I'm biased, it should be the Patty Brisbane Foundation. We have a great resource center. I think if you are looking, you should be going to academic centers where you have professors who are really well versed in this. You can do research. We are doing, we are cutting edge. So we are cutting edge in terms of science. We fund uh, scientific programs that are looking at laser. So I would start there and look at those clinicians who have, who have submitted research, um, who are really on the cutting edge, they're at the cusp of the research and the details. 
um, and really ask for information. There's societies like the North American Menopause Society. There are societies like the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. But I think it's really important to gather information. Sometimes it's not, it, it's okay to ask questions. And we have a resource center. So, you know, I think for all those listening, it's okay to say, you know, I want the Patty Brisbane Foundation to be the first stop. And we have a, an amazing panel up here. We have an amazing resource center here. And, you know, we have that network to be able to shuttle somebody to the right person in the right location and really afford them the ability to get proper uh, information. And, and in today's hope, day with telehealth, it would be amazing. Yes. Michael, can I, I'd like to jump in because Patty's question is so important, particularly for the consultants, because women don't know where to go for information. And so where they end up going is actually God knows where. They're often the internet wilderness and finding a lot of information either through friends or crazy websites and they're giving given misinformation. So it, we are responsible for helping direct them to accurate information because not everybody has an academic resource or you say, right. go to an academic center that they don't even know what that is. So I think the consultants can maybe help guide women to either the, um, the websites of those organizations you mentioned, like NAMS has, North American Menopause Society has a patient-facing website and the International Society for Study of Women's Sexual Health will have patient-facing websites that can give digestible information. And, and you know, the Patty Brisbane Foundation has digestible information because too much science is just gonna overwhelm even, even I get overwhelmed a, a lot reading things. So we wanna make sure it's something they can understand and not just kind of say, oh, forget it, I don't get it. And I jump in too. <laughs> Sure. Because when you when you're looking at these the sign when you're looking at the claims, you know it's really important that you understand who's funding that study and what the outcomes are. Because people say this is eighty percent effective, and that's just like based on a biopsy or some like random number, not an outcome that really matters to a patient. So that's really important when, when trying to read between the lines, not just the sound bites. Or, or what you see on the advertisements in clinic offices, on the internet, et cetera. American College of OBGYN is another great resource with frequently asked questions, patient-facing pages about what normal anatomy looks like and the variations. And you know, having served on uh, the, the um, patient education um, board for ACOG, I, I know that this is something that you know, they need to get that information out because it, it has been vetted with a lot of experts as well as yeah, the Patty Brisbane. Sherelle, I'm surprised actually that as you're talking about lasers and these radio frequency devices, that one of the, the things that women are, are not informed about is the safety and efficacy of vaginal hormone therapy, right? So yeah. when you're thinking about what would you use and what has science behind it, to prevent, and I know Dr. Vaccaro is going to talk about genitourinary syndrome of menopause, but those are the women, these postmenopausal women who have the tissue that essentially atrophies and the dryness and the pain with sexual activity. We have safe and effective treatments that are data-driven, 
right? And that, that women are afraid of because they're getting misinformation. And so, you know, on the other side of, do the lasers need more data? Absolutely. But we have safe and effective treatments so that women can have pain-free uh, sexual, uh, sexual health and healthy vaginas. And Cheryl, that kind of ties into the concept of, you know, follow the science and ask questions. And, you know, and very often what I see is women will say, I never knew. I never knew there were other options. It goes into this concept. If you are holding a hammer, everything is a nail. So, and we need healthcare professionals who are trained and focused on women's health to take back control over the vagina and know all the treatment options. Because very often I will have, as a tertiary referral, have women come in and say, you know, I got a laser and now it's, I'm still in severe pain. And they said, if I use vaginal hormones, I'm going to get, you know, a malignancy or cancer. And I end up spending quite some time talking about the safety and efficacy and the long history of minimally absorbed local vaginal estrogen. So option counseling, certainly I agree with you, and comprehensive option counseling. That includes non-hormonal, it includes hormonal, it includes non hormonal alternatives, oral medications, all different types of delivery systems. And I think people shy away from that because it is a detailed conversation that you can't have in a 30 second uh, interlude with a patient. So uh, again, all tying together that people need to be educated about option counseling, about their clinician, building a right team, and be really being under understanding that these are not without uh, adverse events. And I think your point is very, very well taken.